thank you for being so patient after a very stimulating uh, morning, I would say. Uh, and I would like to thank, uh, in particular, uh, Bayan Al-Hout, who has left us uh, because of her own uh, health reasons, for what she reminded us of the contribution of Dr. Walid Al-Khaldi to the Institute. But I think you will agree with me, all of you, that what we have heard this morning, particularly the two last interventions, were absolutely uh, illuminating in why history is part of our future, not only our present, uh, and how much time we need in order to look back with the new tools of knowledge on legal rights and how legal systems work and how legal instruments work to create real diplomacy. I have, my name is Leila Shaheed. I was 25 years uh, ambassador of Palestine in places like the EU that are uh, one of the multilateral institutions that requires most instruments. And like uh, Dr. Anis Qasim said, we didn't even have a legal advisor in Oslo. And we as diplomats never took, I never took any, any lessons in law or international law or even sessions uh, in, in, in our ministry. Uh, I think it's a matter really of ignorance, of, of being uh, uh, beyond or behind a lot of other uh, civilizations because of our history, because of decolonization. And you saw how the young generation of, of Noura Harikat read in a wonderful way, and this is specifically American and much more than European. We need you also in French, your book we need in French, Nora, because I think it goes back a lot to colonial uh, uh, understanding of law and manipulation of law, including what we all learned that we didn't, couldn't even guess from what you and Dr. Qasim said of what really happened, whether with the, the, the promise or the declaration of Belfort or the fact that the colonials use said determination also about colonial times. Now we are in the second session where we were supposed to hear Sahar Hunaidi. Unfortunately, Sahar lost uh, her uh, vocal cords uh, yesterday and is incapable even of reading her paper. So uh, she's not among us, I'm sorry, because I would have loved to meet her. Uh, uh, Sahar uh, is a very well, uh, 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 informed person. She is um, head of publication in something uh, that in London is called the East West Publishing. And uh, she was the editorial director of the National Council for Culture and Arts in Kuwait. And I suppose that she lives between England and Kuwait because I don't know her personally. And the Institute of Palestine Studies has published in Arabic a work she published in England and London uh, on uh, Zionism and the Palestinian question from 1920 to 1925. Uh, my friend and uh, colleague from uh, the Institute of Palestine Studies, uh, Ahmed Al-Khaldi, was nice enough to read for us her intervention. For you to have time to bite something before we go to the next session. We will have no discussion right, right after uh, Mrs. Hunaidi's paper, and we'll do the discussion when we come back after lunch, and then we'll continue the normal procedure. Ahmed. Thank you, Leila. My, my job here is simply to read the paper out, which I'll try to do to the best of my ability. Uh, she starts the paper with 
Due to circumstances beyond my control, I regret that I am unable to attend this conference, and I am grateful to blank myself, who is kindly reading it for me. <clears throat> my paper will focus on one theme that emerges from a close reading of the historical records, namely how shaky were the grounds on which the Balfour Declaration stood and how precarious British pro-Zionist policy was right from the very beginning in 1917 up to the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948 with particular reference to the 1922-23 controversy. This is in sharp contrast to Zionist portrayals of the Balfour Declaration past and present, that the declaration was a serious act of well-thought-out statesmanship. The title of the talk is The Balfour Declaration in British Archives, 1923, a reassessment. <clears throat> Forebodings, doubts, and deep misgivings about Zionist policy in Palestine sum up the impressions expressed by many British officials in London and Jerusalem at the time in the early 1920s. These thoughts articulated privately and in internal minutes and memoranda reveal the shaky grounds on which the Zionist policy stood, the reversal of which seemed very real and to cause profound alarm in Zionist circles. As early as March 1920, when Palestine was still under foreign office control, British foreign office control, and before the civil administration had been set up in Palestine under High Commissioner Herbert Samuel in June of that year, a minute by Major Herbert Young in the military service in Mesopotamia uh, and general staff officer and foreign office representative in the Middle East reveals that the possibility of abandoning the government's pro-Zionist policy was persistently brought up in official circles. Ironically, pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist British officials had the same clear vision of what Zionist policy meant to the people of Palestine. It meant the subjugation of the Palestinian Arab inhabitants, the vast majority of the population, to the minority and the growing mass of immigrant European Jews under the auspices of the Zionist movement. The diagnosis was the same, but the remedy was different. Before we continue this account, it will be necessary first to draw attention to the bewildering influence that the Zionist leader, Chaim Wiseman, exerted on British politicians as well as civil servants an influence that is no less intriguing than the whole history of the Balfour Declaration. There is no doubt that the so-called genius Wiseman displayed an unusual combination of skills. There is also a consensus that by the fall of 1917, he could turn the key to most doors in Whitehall, the seat of British government. Edwin Montague, son of one of the most vociferous opponents of the government's Zionist policy, himself a Jew, the other was Lord Curzon, described Wiseman's position on the Balfour Declaration as near to being that of a religious fanatic. 
Wiseman's moreover managed to persuade influential men in Britain and other Western capitals that international Jewry was a powerful subterranean force whose goodwill should be sought for Jewish finance in America and Jewish influence on anti-war figures in Russia could help to determine the First World War's outcome. In a long obituary, Christopher Sykes wrote in March, obituary of Wiseman, wrote in March 1953, there can never be any doubt that Dr. Weisman was a great man. When we consider how remote 50 years ago the chances were the chances that a Jewish state would ever exist again in Palestine or anywhere else, and how the genius of the first president of Israel was the essential power which accompanied the return, we must stand amazed at what he did. Men like Arthur Balfour, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain, C.P. Scott, Sir Mark Sykes of the famous Mark uh, Sykes-Picot Agreement, and Lord Cecil saw in him, a wise man, a direct representative of the largest Jewish community in the world and the one that stood in most grievous need. Those who knew him reported that Wiseman knew which arguments to use with whom and that he possessed a great talent for turning casual meetings into fateful encounters, perfecting the art of the personal intimate interview. These private interviews often took place in Downing Street with successive prime ministers and in the colonial office with John Shuckborough <coughs> who was a senior uh, foreign office official. One British politician, Robert Boothby, went so far as to suggest that there was a Wiseman phase with all the ages written into it. He, years later, he recalled, he recalled that it was Wiseman's eyes that impressed him the most. Another leading figure, Harold uh, Nicholson, who in 1917 was charged with drafting and redrafting the Balfour Declaration, also had vivid memories of Chaim Wiseman. He was a good negotiator, except he was really proud. I mean, if any man suggested to him that he was asking for favors, he would get really angry and say, I'm not asking for favors, I'm demanding rights. Well, he hadn't got any rights, but he would say so, and his, uh, when he hadn't got any rights, he would say so, and his eyes would flash with fury. He was never a sort of petitioner. He was always rather a dictator, even to the British government. In 1922, uh, Shuckborough, we've just mentioned, wrote, we all know how persistent and insinuating the Zionists are. Even you, he's talking to some other official, and I, who are not Jews and never served on a Zionist commission, find it difficult enough at time to preserve an acquiemmentum, a, a pacific face, in the face of Weizmann's pleadings and Leonard Stein's heroics. A fellow Jew and Zionist would be far more exposed to their light and heavy artillery and would find it much more difficult to maintain in the presence of his tormentors the necessary attitude of official impartiality. Although the evidence is there, scholars have shirked from a frank discussion of the subject, and more often than not, they have gone along with the reverent descriptions accorded to Wiseman by many of his contemporaries. Even those 
admitted to Weizmann's who have admitted to his dictatorial tendencies and many times even to his neurotic outbursts. To call it what it is, Weizmann was a master manipulator and a genius of deception. And not until this is fully understood and appreciated can we really understand the triangle of British Zionist Palestinian politics throughout the whole of the British mandate in Palestine. <clears throat> Arguably even more far-reaching than the influence of Weizmann uh, on policymakers, uh, it was in the offices of the colonial office where Weizmann was an ubiquitous present and where his influence could be felt most. His most vociferous supporters were William Ormsby Gore and Richard Mainzhagen. Ormsby Gore joined the Arab Bureau in 1916 as an intelligence officer where he met with Aaron Aronson who introduced him to Zionism. In March 1917, Ormsby Gore was recalled to London to be the private secretary to Milner and later became assistant secretary to the cabinet, assisting Mark Sykes. Colonel Richard Meinzhagen, the chief political officer to the military administration of Syria and Palestine, was considered to be one of the most active and committed Gentile Zionists in Britain. He played an important role in ending the military administration, which was known for its anti-Zionist sympathies. Mainz-Hagen's support for the Zionist cause was so vehement that the Palin Commission set up to look into the causes of the 1920 Easter riots in Jerusalem, described him as Dr. Weizmann's nominee and the chief supporter of the Zionists. When it was discovered in June 1922 that Weizmann had gained access to secret telegrams and dispatches coming to and out of the Middle East Department, Meinzhagen was the immediate suspect. And in 1923, he did reveal to Leonard Stein the full secret details of a meeting of the Cabinet Subcommittee on Palestine, which had expressed doubts about the, continuing wisdom, uh, the wisdom of continuing with a pro-Zionist policy. A revelation so alarming that Weizmann was urged to return immediately from a visit to Europe. The flow of information was far greater, according to his biographer, than Mainz-Hagen was prepared to admit. Thus, one full year into the British mandate in Palestine, when the issue of an elected representative assembly was under discussion, Mainz-Hagen objected to the proposal. He clearly saw that so long as our policy is not accepted to the people of Palestine, so long we must directly administer the country. As the colonial office continued to grapple with the situation in Palestine, and the similar views continued to be expressed amongst British civil servants, they had to deal with the first major eruption of, of violence against Zionism in 1921. As a result, the government issued the White Paper of 1922, which was the first attempt to explain what the Balfour Declaration actually meant. The White Paper does not concern us here. What is of more concern is the double notion that Samuel, Herbert Samuel came up with to redefine the Balfour Declaration. In order to stifle any questioning of the Declaration, its origins or intentions, Samuel, probably on advice from Weizmann, came up with the notion that the declaration was a done deal and a closed issue, a fait accompli as he framed it. No matter how open and precarious the Balfour Declaration was, 
and continued to be till the very end of the British years in Palestine, the Middle East Department repeated this mantra despite the contrary views that were expressed in private. Indeed, British policy in Palestine had never been in more doubt than in the winter of 22 and the first half of 23, when the whole government probed the very foundations of its Zionist policy. The trigger of the soul-searching was the October 22 fall of the Lloyd George government, which was, had been deeply committed to the Zionist policy and the formation of a new conservative government following an overwhelming electoral victory with strong anti-Zionist sympathies. Throughout this period, a flood of memoranda was directed by Shakbara, the head of the Middle East Department of the Colonial Office, and aimed at the new colonial secretary, the Duke of Devonshire, who lacked his predecessor, who was Winston Churchill, he lacked his Zionist leanings. Two messages were driven home repeatedly, that if Britain failed to honor its pledge, we certainly should stand convicted of an act of perfidy from which it is hardly too much to say that our good name would never recover. And secondly, that, quote, if we are to tear up our pledge, there's only one ground on which we could possibly do so. We should have to announce to the world that we have undertaken a task beyond our strength and that we have no alternative but to put it aside. In that event, we should clear out of Palestine altogether. Anticipating further inquiries, Shakbara took upon himself to look into the origins of the Balfour Declaration. The inquiry was remarkable, especially for the dearth of all official documents on the subject that it uncovered. Although he combed through the records, Shakbara found nothing that would shed light on the earlier history of negotiations leading up to the Balfour Declaration. Balfour himself, pressed, pressed by Shakbara, pleaded a bad memory and regretted the death of Mark Sykes, who he said had the whole things at his fingertips. And although the Foreign Office papers were understood to have been lengthy and covered a considerable period, the most comprehensive explanation of the origins of the, British, of the Balfour Declaration in the British Foreign Office that, was able to, uh, that the British Office was able to provide was in a small, unofficial note affirming the following, quote, little is known of how the policy represented by the declaration was first given form. Negotiations seem to have been mainly oral and by means of private notes and memoranda of which only the scantiest records are available even if more may exist. <clears throat> Shakbar revealed that as official records are silent, it can only be assumed that such discussions had taken place were of an inform informal and private character. He thus turned for help and asked William Ormsby Gore to record what he remembered about the earlier history of the de declaration. Accordingly, Ormsby Gore produced a one-page memorandum from his own recollection of events. In the last paragraph of this memo, Ormsby Board declared that it was actually he, together with the Colonel L.S. Amory, who had drafted the Balfour Declaration in its final form. The story of these missing documents is told in the forthcoming book told, entitled The Hidden History of the Balfour Declaration. Shakbar was able to develop his own interpret interpretation influenced by Ormsby Gore's account. 
In a minute to the Secretary of State, he wrote, we made our promise to the Jews at the time of grave national emergency because we thought we might obtain some assistance from them. We induced our allies to become parties to the promise. Finally, we had it formally ratified. It seems to me that if we are to tear up our pledge, we should have to announce to the world that we had undertaken a task beyond our strength and we have no alternative but to put it aside and clear out of Palestine altogether. Interestingly, the same arguments used by those opposed to the Balfour policy were almost exact mirrors, images of Shakbar's pro-Zionist arguments. Lord Sindham, in the debate in the House of Lords, declared that the Arabs had rendered us a very great service during the war at a very critical time, and they certainly believed that the pledge to which I have referred to was a real pledge, the pledge to the Arabs, that we should honor. Charging that our pledge had been dis broken, distinctly broken, Sindham urged the government to restore its tarnished reputation and noted that because of the Balfour policy, our prestige in the Near East and far beyond has undergone a very dark the other point that Chakbara drove home repeatedly was that the real alternative facing the government was the complete evacuation or continu of continuing to honor the Zionist pledge. The influence of such memoranda was considerable. In April 1923, a private conversation reveals lingering doubts about British policy in Palestine. In confidence, Chakbara told another British official that he could see no end, no solution to the problem, and no hope or solving it or improving it, uh, improving the situation. He could have been talking about today. In uh, May 23, uh, Shakbara was urging the government to make up its mind. The possibility of a reversal of the government's policy had been conveyed or leaked to the Zionists. Thus, in face of this simmering con controversy, Wiseman stepped up his activities. In a letter in 1923, he said that a fresh readjustment involving the abandonment of vital principles would be a shattering blow which might prove fatal to Zionism. Even though British support for Zionists, for Zionists seemed to have been secured in the summer of 1923, it's important to draw attention to the fact that the League of Nations had not yet, up to this point, ratified the mandate. This was yet to come in September that year, and the question of future Zionist policy in Palestine continued to trouble the British as well as the international community. By the autumn of the following year, another storm was coming the Zionist way, this time from Geneva. A leaked report from the Permanent Mandates Commission caused an outcry in Zionist circles. It stated that in relation to the Palestine Mandate, the Permanent Mandates Commission had been faced with a special situation, whereas all the other mandates, the application of which it has hitherto examined, were only intended to give effect to the general principles laid down in Article 22 of the Covenant uh, the Palestine mandate is of a more complex nature. A few uh, excerpts from this report. According to the fundamental principles of Article 22, trying to make it short for you. Just 
just repeats basically the Balfour Declaration and says that due to these conflicting promises, the Commission, the Mandate Commission, considers that it would not be fulfilling its task if it refrained from making any reference to the facts which have come to, to its notice, to the notice of this Commission in this connection. Interestingly, and in order to, to demonstrate what it meant with greater clarity, the Commission desired to draw the attention of the League of Nations Council to the particular problem of immigration, which in its view was the dominant issue of the present situation in Palestine, and Jewish immigration, of course. The Commission went on to say that as these provisions make it a duty of the Palestine administration to encourage Jewish immigration into Palestine, it was also its duty to regulate that immigration. The Commission was therefore bound to observe that the policy of the mandatory power as regards immigration gives rise to acute controversy. The result was the Zionists were unsatisfied and impatient with restrictions placed on immigration, and the policy was rejected by the Arab majority in the country, which refuses to accept the idea of a Jewish national home. The Commission's draft report was leaked to the Zionists, prompted Weizmann to write on November 1924 a lengthy personal and private letter to the director of the Mandates Department of the League of Nations, Professor W.E. Rappard. Weizmann enclosed a copy of the report that appeared in the Jewish press a few days previously, which purports still to be a draft, and in which he objected to the part in the report on immigration and other parts that appeared to him to be most unfortunate, and he announced shocked and deeply angered him. I have no official standing with the League, he said, but I am the head of the Jewish agency. The unbiased reader, quote, and most certainly interested parties such as our Arab and other antagonists could not help feeling on reading this document that the Permanent Mandates Commission was extremely uneasy and that it meant to criticize the whole policy as this appeared to the Commission of Immigration uh, to be unjust and impractical. But it, as it was tied by its terms of reference, it had to abstain from expressing its real opinion. <coughs> Always on edge, Weizmann's relentless efforts at lobbying did not stop there. When Herbert Samuel was leaving at the end of his term in office and fearing a reversal of Zionist policy in Palestine, the Zionist leader was keen to, to meet the next High Commissioner, Lord Plummer. A memo by R.V. Vernon in the Middle East Department is revealing. Vernon reveals that Weizmann came to see him the previous day and that they had a long conversation. Vernon pointed out the disadvantage of giving a hostile press critics an opportunity of saying that we were allowing the Jews to tell the High Commissioner what he had to do. Vernon agreed and suggested that this meeting should be arranged and that the Middle East Department should be represented. Vernon also revealed that Weizmann was very anxious to receive a certain statement from His Majesty's government as to their present interpretation of their policy in Palestine. He added, this is Vernon, that Weizmann was faced with the difficulty of having to meet his own extremists and his own critics. There was going to be a Zionist Congress in Vienna, and he was going after that to America to raise funds. Before the end of the decade and following the 1929 riots, the White Paper of 1930, known as the Passfield Paper, did, in fact, overturn the policy of the Balfour Declaration. 
Yet again, under Weizmann's stewardship in February 1931, the Passfield White Paper was revoked. The Passfield White Paper was written under the influence of Schachtberger, who in 1931, after 10 years of heading the department, was leaving. He stressed that it was necessary to limit the Zionist influence in London. Having, however, nothing came out of this, and Prime Minister Macdonald's letter to Weizmann reversed the, the Passfield White Paper, was considered a scandalous climb down by members of the British and diplomatic establishment in Jerusalem. The Macdonald letter of February 1931 nullified the Passfield White Paper and returned political relations between the Zionists and the British government to their former status. One author notes that the reversal of the Passfield White Paper was not out of conviction for the Zionist cause, but for other reasons. Despite this, the Zionists understood how fragile and unreliable the foundations of their political relationship with the mandatory power were. In conclusion, as he says, the Zionists' luck, it was the Zionists' luck that the retreat of the British from their support of the Balfour Declaration was a gradual one, and it took almost 30 years for the Zionists to build up their national home to the point where it was capable of taking destiny into its own hands. On the eve of the British withdrawal from Palestine in May 1948, High Commissioner Alan Cunningham, in his farewell message, announced, tomorrow at midnight, the final page in the history of Palestine and the British mandate in Palestine is turned. It is not my wish at this period of the British departure to turn back the pages and look at the past. It would be easy in doing so to say sometimes, here we did right, and that no doubt at other times we did wrong. In this respect, we are more than content to accept the judgment of history, a pathetic ending to one of the shabbiest administrations in colonial history. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ahmad, uh, for uh, helping us uh, get to know the uh, work that uh, Sahar Hunaydi has presented and that will probably, can you hear me? That she will probably be publishing soon, soon in a book entitled the hidden history of the Belfort Declaration. I'm supposed to be a moderator, but I can't not react to the fact that it's a bit too much personalized around. I mean, I know politics is influenced by, by, by leaders, but I think we, in the discussion, maybe we can come back. We have great specialists of the mandate period, including uh, Dr. Anis and uh, Dr. Khaldi. So I hope uh, we can, even if she's not with us, challenge a bit a reading of history, which makes it a bit too much uh, only the work of uh, individual leaders at certain moments, although I recognize that Wiseman was surely uh, a very smart one. Now, if you don't mind, because we, have a bit, we are a bit late for lunch, you're invited, all of you, to go and have lunch on the fifth floor, and then we come back in an hour's time, uh, no, less than an hour, in 45 minutes' time, because we have still uh, a number of people who will be intervening in the, in the rest of the, of the session on the same subject of international legitimacy, which is Dr. Eugene Rogan, Shafi al-Masri, and Kamil Mansour by Skype. Thank you very much, and bon appétit.